I have a certain variety of delight and fascination launching into this topic. Zazen is good for nothing. Who would say something like that? Seriously. Zazen is good for nothing. Not only am I saying that, but I'm saying it like in the, in the suit, in the room, the tatami, I've got the Buddha over my shoulder. There's a whole room of people right across the courtyard probably talking about how beneficial Zazen is. And I'm going to say Zazen is good for nothing. That's pretty wild, right? Well, it's not an original. It's not a me original. It comes from a, a teacher of 20th century Japan named Sawaki, Sawaki Roshi. He was something of a trailblazer, one of a kind. I talk about him from time to time. His name is Sawaki Kodo. And he's really well known because um, in the 20th century, he, he was considered like the primary teacher to bring Zazen to lay people. It's kind of like what we're up to, if it hadn't been for Sawaki Roshi. So his influence is there. And he was, um, I don't know if it's respectful of me, but I characterized him, I characterize him as rather feisty. If you read his, uh, some of his short teachings, they're really pithy aphorisms, short to the point, they really get your attention. One of them is Zazen is good for nothing. Interesting in our own context, because the, the cultural arc these days tends to be, meditation has all these benefits for you. We talk about it in those terms, right? Um, and those are true. Like We can't argue with the documentation, really. Plus, I imagine a lot of us are here because we've meditated and found benefit in our own life. So I'm not calling that into question. But there's something about this teaching. Sazen is good for nothing and what it points to that I think is important. Seems like a good idea to say a few words about Zazen itself before we start evaluating it. Simple practice, we were just up to in a variety. A few different ways to think about Zazen, but you can cut through a lot of the ideas by putting yourself on a cushion, setting yourself in an alert, upright posture, and letting your awareness and attention accompany this, now this, now this, now this. And we don't control what arises. We don't really know what's going to arise, of course. And our job is to be there, to really be there, recognize that this is what's going on. You know, I can see it, there's so many, like, your attention is really keen. It's like that, what you're doing right now, that's Sazen. You're just here. End of talk. So Sazen comes with a context. You know, the um, Suzuki Roshi bringing, bringing our practice of Sazen from Japan right up the street and then to here. And before him, this like whole lineage 
of teachers in Japan, in China, India. We think of it, when I say lineage, it sounds like it's a line, like one line, but really it's like this whole web, this whole wide, vast, interconnected family web of teachers that brought Zazen. There's something pretty powerful, powerful I feel, when I sit down on a cushion and I tap into the, like all the beings that brought the practice and the, the connection to that, all the way back to legendary encounter where the Buddha holds up a flower and one of the disciples smiles. Because the disciple was right there. Just, just right there. So Sawaki Roshi. Maybe I met a comment. To get into this story, to get into this teaching, I think one of the invitations is that it's necessary to leave aside our usual ways of thinking. At least the, at least the mode, the prevailing mode of thinking that's um, the logic is commerce and media that we're, we just swim in, we swim in it all the time. And it's not a commendation of that mind. It's really, it's really pretty useful for us. But I think to understand Sawaki Roshi's teaching takes a little bit of a, a little bit of a shift. So here's the story. This is uh, as told by Sawaki Roshi's student, Uchiyama, Uchiyama Roshi. So he puts it like this. Sawaki Roshi ended a long talk on Zazen by saying that it's good for nothing. People thought he was joking. That, however, was not the case. As I've already said, wherever, whatever happens, I live out my life. And as long as I maintain this attitude, I can't go anywhere. There's nowhere to go. And since I have nowhere to go, it's natural to say that Zazen is good for nothing. There's nothing to gain from it because it is universe full, universe hyphen full. Shortly after I began to practice with Sawaki Roshi, he goes on, I had an opportunity to walk with him in the town of Utsunomiya. While we were walking, I said, as you know, I'm such a humble student. I have to interject and say, such a humble student, what he's about to do. As you know, I'm a rather incompetent person, but I want to continue to practice Zazen with you for 20 or even 30 years or until you die. If I do that, would it be possible for a weak person like me to become a little stronger? Wow, yes. Sawaki Roshi replied, no, Zazen is useless. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> he had a loud, deep voice that was powerful and resolute. Sawaki Roshi goes on. I am not like this because of my practice of Zazen. I was like this before I began to practice. Zazen doesn't change a person. Zazen is useless. Wow. Wow. Okay. I'm going to settle back down. When I imagine that encounter, like this... Um, sincere student who's ordained with this teacher and is like, hey, if I follow you for 30 years, can I improve just a little? And his teacher's like, no way. (laughs) 
No way at all. And then he practiced with him for 25 more years until he died in 1965. What, what would possess someone to practice like that for 25 more years if Zazen was really good for nothing? Like, what is that about? Like, of course, we can take the teaching of Zazen is good for nothing at face value, literally like seated meditation, utility equals zero. Utility of seated meditation equals zero. But that just doesn't make any sense when you think of Sawaki Roshi committing for 25 years, committed his whole life to the practice of Zazen. So I'm thinking there has to be something of value here, but something I'm, I'm not quite seeing, right? And one way that I start to understand this is I look at how that teaching functions. I was talking, talking to one of my own teachers about this and I was like, this teaching is radical. I benefit from Zazen. This teaching says Zazen is good for nothing. And she said, right. Zazen doesn't let yourself land anywhere. You can't own the practice. We can hardly say that you do the practice. So our lives are pretty short, relatively speaking. We only get so many years, so many years of work. We only get so many strolling walks through Golden Gate Park. We only get to listen to so many Dharma talks and we only get to sit so many hours of meditation, right? That being so, I'm gonna tell you the punchline of the talk right now. And that is, of course, Zazen changes you. Of course it does. Of course, Zazen transforms you. The punchline is, you don't get to decide how. I'm sorry. We don't get to decide how Zazen changes us. And in that way, it's something of a leap of faith. Sort of common, but un common in the places like this, but unexpected knowledge that someone who has a deep realization or a deep insight, they never say, oh, enlightenment, just as I expected. <laughs> Precisely as I imagined. And that's the nature of insight. That's part of what gives it its that like haunting feeling of truth. So it gives it its weight and gravity, its, its surprise. Um, I think Zach, a few weeks ago, said it something like, reality and our frame of perception rub up against one another and then something shifts and our whole frame changes. So of course we change, but we don't get to aim. We don't really get to aim the arrow.
There's a story I've told before that uh, I'm going to tell again because I found a new rendering of it. And I'm sort of enamored with it about the goal of practice. It's a story about uh, Kobanchino Roshi. Very influential figure in California Zen over these years. And uh, the writing of the story goes like this. This one's by Jeff Brooks. He says, Kobanchino could divide a leaf of grass. Oh, we're talking archery. Kobanchino could divide a leaf of grass from a distance of 25 meters. Let's think about that for a sec. What's 25 meters? 75, 80, 85 feet? A blade of grass with an arrow. Jeff Brooks goes on. His students were watching him doing that many times. On a spring day, he drove one of his students along the Pacific Coast Highway. He stopped the car on the roadside, opened the trunk, pulled out a two-meter-long Japanese bow and a quiver and a, hand, a hand-carved arrow. They walked across the street to the cliff, from which one could overlook the surging surf and the Pacific, infinite and extending to the horizon. The student would have seen the uniformly blue and cloudless sky over the Pacific if he had looked up, but his gaze was fixed on the hands of his teacher, who placed the arrow masterfully on the bowstring and with a slight inhalation, stretched the string to its max. His arms and back uniting with the bow, his eyes as sharp as the tip of the arrow. The world froze for a moment. Then came the sound of the releasing arrow, exceeding the noise of the surf, followed by what's called the pine wind, when the string of the bow comes to a halt. The arrow flew in a high and gigantic arch over the ocean. Someone who could split a blade of grass took aim and loosed his arrow into the ocean. And in, the, uh, in another telling of this story, there's a little add-on, which I hope is true. Apparently he goes, bullseye. <laughs> uh, what's remarkable about that is this, someone, this is someone who has the skill to put the arrow right there. So what's being communicated by loosing an arrow into the ocean? I really don't know. What do you think? For me, it's, the story is, it's the question of how do we have to shift our usual understanding in order to meet that person eye to eye, in order to have that encounter? And I have the same question about Sawaki Roshi. What's he doing with that arrow of Zazen is good for nothing? And how do I have to shift? I really want to highlight, I think it kind of goes without saying, how different this is from our everyday operating perspectives. One of our teachers calls this the world according to me. 
And I don't want to blame just us. As I said before, it's like we're immersed in this culture of gain. So to propose something as wild as this is good for nothing, oh yeah, and it's valuable. How does that make sense? So Zazen will transform us, but we don't get to do it on our own terms. Hmm. We don't get to do it on the terms defined by the mind. I think that's why one of my teachers calls Zen a body practice. You might notice when we, when we do Zazen instruction or guided Zazen, we spend so much time getting the posture Spent so much time just lining up the posture. And then the rest is like usually very slight. The instruction is very slight. I remember this time regarding how Zazen informs and changes and develops the body. I was, uh, I was at another temple and I, I was looking, at, looking across a yard. There was this big ceremony. There were a bunch of, bunch of robed people around. I was looking across the yard to a porch where there were maybe like half a dozen, half a dozen robed people, priests, standing on this porch. And a few of them were looking away from me. And I could tell who had trained at Tassajara and who had not by looking at their posture. Just to say how, like the, the language that came through their body, it was like, ah yes, Tassajara monk, Tassajara monk. It was so cool. Zen is a body practice. This calls to mind how, um, I don't know if it's body language experts. You may know. There's, um, there's all this advice about going into a job interview where you like put your body into confident postures before you go. Has anyone heard of this? Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know if you've tried it, it really works. So. So what, a, what, a, what that calls to mind for me is the way that we communicate from the body to the mind. And there's a way we do this in the Zen forms, the way we put ourselves in Zazen posture. Like what's that communicating to the mind? What's it communicating to the heart? Or when we do full prostrations, we put our forehead to the floor and the palms open. And then you lift, lift the palms up over the head like this, just really slow and soft. What does it mean? Who knows? But what's it doing to the body? What's it doing to the mind? So Zen is a body training. I would say it's a training that rather than building up a better self, it immerses us in the complexity and profundity of our life. Fully immersed. When a sound comes, the sound comes, and then it goes. The breath comes, the breath goes. The language of sensation speaks, and then it goes. Full immersion in experienced reality. Okay, what's that communicating to us? 
And it's, it's something that confounds concept. Like we can't put words on it. I'm doing my best. But I think that's something of the beauty and why this continues to happen, why we keep talking about this, is because we can never quite wrap words around reality. Looking really closely at the mind and how concept functions, you can, you can see you can see how the mind sort of takes bits and pieces and tries to make shapes, but it's always working in a finite space. And then there's always something outside of it. So Zazen is good for nothing because the mind of gain is this. Zazen is open and compassionate enough to include it and then zazen is well beyond. It includes much more. So zazen doesn't say, don't ever use your conceptual mind. Don't ever think in terms of utility. It includes and it goes beyond. Couple more things. Yeah, and feel free to move. Feel free to move. So a pithy teaching like this, I don't think it's just a, an attention getter. I don't think Sawaki Roshi was just trying to get people's attention. I think he was actually trying to communicate something or support people in their practice. I was talking to a senior teacher recently who's been teaching for some like 40 years and he was just saying one of the ways he thinks of his function is keeping people safely on the path. That's it. Doesn't have to like show them how to do it or um, take too much responsibility for how people practice, but it's like, we'll just keep them safely on the path. And thinking of Sawaki Roshi in this light and Zazen is good for nothing one of, the, one of the teachings that comes up in our tradition a lot is not to grasp two ideas. Not to grasp two ideas about the practice, not to grasp two ideas about enlightenment, freedom, and liberation. Not to grasp. Sound familiar? Some? some? So this is where I want to add, in relationship to that, don't grasp at ideas for, about awakening. I'm going to say maybe the most risky thing I'll say tonight. If grasping the practice is what's needed for you right now to stay safely on the path, I want you to grasp. Whew. My stomach feels weird just saying that. <laughs> if grasping is what's needed right now, there's a way in which the path is self-correcting if you stay on the path. When the time and the conditions are right and you don't need the grasping anymore, it will let go. So we don't, we don't, really, we don't really have to worry too much about grasping after the practice. I want to pay some respect to the generations of compassionate teachers who have advised us against grasping and grasping to ideas of freedom 
And I have this, I have this other notion to balance it, which is like, what about, what about the energy it takes to graft the practice to your own root until there's just no way in the world it can come undone. Until it's really, really a part of a part of your being. Uchiyama Roshi expresses this in a different way by saying, we live by vow and then we root it deeply. So what's the difference? Yeah, a question for you to hold. What's the difference between vow and grasping? Both have strong effort in, in them. But how do, we vow, how do we vow without compulsion? How do we vow without conceit? How do we vow without harm? A question to keep. But I think one well worth considering because the, the, the currents of the, what I'm calling tonight the, the culture of gain or gain culture, the currents are so strong, it actually takes a lot of effort to keep ourselves safely on the path. A lot of effort. The abbess of Green Gulch, Fu Schrader, who's at Tassajara right now, was once asked by a friend of mine, uh, will you ordain me? Will you ordain me as a priest? You know what Fu's response was? Can you be stopped? Sazen, good for nothing. Sazen, maybe good, maybe for something. How do we do that? How do we do that in a way that's immersed in freedom? I can't answer that question for you tonight. I want to let this uh, Tang Dynasty poet Wang Wei wrap it up for us. And he's, he's uh, discussing something about a place in Zazen that can't be said to be gain or loss, can't be considered something we go after, because when we try to go after it, we miss it. Good for nothing, because utility is too active. This is how he puts it. In my middle years, I've grown rather fond of the way. When the spirit moves me, I leave my solitary hut and go and see the things that only I can see. I follow the stream to the source and sit and watch the place where the clouds pile up. Or perhaps by chance, I meet a woodsman and we laugh and sing with never a thought of going home. Maybe one more time. In my middle years, I've grown rather fond of the way. When the spirit moves me, I leave my solitary hut and go and see the things that only I can see. 
I follow the stream to the source and sit and watch the place where the clouds pile up. Or perhaps by chance I meet a woodsman and we laugh and sing with never a thought of going home. Sazen, good for nothing. There's so much more to say, but I think we'll stop. Thank you very much.